3: Book
0: Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out.
3: Do, 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 do. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book
2: Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest.
1: Hi, everybody. It's Laney, and I'm joined by Virginia. Hi, Virginia. Hi. Hi, Laney. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. And we were talking about what we wanted to do this week and we decided why not do something from the archives. We have this really unique conversation between Ann Patchett and Kevin Wilson, who are beloved authors by everyone and beloved authors by us on the library team. And um, we wanted to show you this like really cool, unique audio that we had that we could use that no, not a lot of people have heard. So, Virginia, do you want to introduce what we're going to let them hear?
0: Sure. So the Public Library Association, which is a division of the ALA, they hold their conference every other year. So the uh, so the Public Library Association held its conference in Nashville in February of 2020. And one of the things that this conference does is it offers a virtual conference for members who can't actually attend the conference in person. So. Uh, they have two author slots, two slots where authors are interviewed. In this one particular slot, Kevin Wilson and Ann Patchett interviewed each other, which was really, really neat. They'd not done that before. Usually somebody from PLA interviews the author, but this was a great opportunity and they both wanted to do it. And so they sat down in the studio that was set up by PLA at the conference and they talked to each other. First time I believe they've ever done this, um, as part of a, as part of a conference. And they talked about, um, their, their friendship, their writing life, how they write when they write how long they've known each other they do touch upon their books at some point but ever so briefly because it was really just a conversation between these two very very dear friends so it's really cool it was just fascinating to sit there and listen to them so unrehearsed and just like you were sitting in on a conversation and and just listening to these two brilliant writers and lovely people talk to each other about their books. And Kevin's book is amazing. We all fell in love with it. And it's about a woman who, um, who's uh, takes care of an old friend's kids. Um, And these kids have a very uh, unique um, ability, I suppose, to um, something that happens to them when they get upset. I won't spoil it for you. You just have to read it and fall in love as we all did and Ann Patchett's book is about siblings and these two brother and sister and um and what they go through uh when um they are sort of disowned and um shunned from the home that they grew up in, the house of their childhood and a past that just won't let them go. It's really incredible and the bond between them is so super strong. That book was uh was on the list for the Pulitzer, but as I say, both books received Incredible reviews and um just beloved, beloved books, beloved authors. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I was just mesmerized. I hope you will be too.
1: Yeah, you were in the room where it happened, as they say. Um, yep. That's a really cool conversation. And I mean, both their books are so great on their own. And then to have this powerhouse duo talking at the conference, I'm, I can't imagine. Um, being there and listening live. Thank you for introducing the books a little, and we're going to play a little audio from from that session. Does that sound like a good idea?
0: Yeah, that sounds great. That's, it's just so wonderful. Enjoy. You're going to love it.
4: Welcome back, everyone. PLA is so happy to have with us today the acclaimed authors, Kevin Wilson and Ann Patchett in Conversation. Kevin Wilson is the author of two collections, Tunneling to the Center of the Earth, which received an Alex Award from the American Library Association and the Shirley Jackson Award, and Baby, You're Gonna Be Mine, and three novels, The Family Fang, Perfect Little World, and Nothing to See Here. His fiction has appeared in Plowshares, Tin House, One Story, A Public Space, and Elsewhere, and has appeared in four volumes of the new stories from the South, the year's best best anthology as well as The Pen O, Henry Prize Stories, 2012. He lives in Sewanee, Tennessee with his wife, the poet Leanne Couch, and his sons, Griff and Patch, where he is an associate professor in the English department at Sewanee, the University of the South. Anne Patchett is the author of six novels and three books of nonfiction. She has won many prizes, including Britain's Orange Prize, the Penn Faulkner Prize, and the Book Sense Book of the Year. Her work has been translated into more than 30 languages. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee, where she is the co-owner of Parnassus Books. Both Kevin and Anne are appearing courtesy of HarperCollins. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank
2: you. Yeah. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how are you, Anne? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay.
3: Um, so Kevin and I are best friends. I don't think we should try to pretend that you know, this is some ethical piece of journalism in which I am interviewing you and asking you hard-hitting questions. When did we meet? What year? Do you remember?
2: Yeah, it was 2001, the the spring, I think, of 2001, Um, because you had won the Penn Faulkner for Bel Canto. It
3: must have been, you know, then it was 2002, Um. because Bel Canto came out
2: Oh yeah, it in, was two thousand two. Yeah, All right, All right. It so, was because then I went to grad school at that in at the in, in the fall.
3: That's right. And it was Easter. It was yeah. Easter weekend, that's and right. that's why you were the only person in the audience. <laughs> no,
2: that's not true.
3: <laughs> it was really close. Um, there were five people. There were five people reading, and I think there were five people in the audience. <laughs>
2: well, I was happy to be there. Yeah,
3: um, and then. Um, you became my dog sitter for a while. Yeah, I, I I asked you. You had you had just moved back home, and you you seemed like you weren't up to anything in particular, and <laughs> so I asked if you would want to come and live with my dog. And that must have been when I was on paperback tour for Bel It was okay. Yeah,
2: because you were going back out on tour. I was living with my parents, and my mom was like, "Am Patchett's on the phone." <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> uh, Yeah. And then so I I took care of Rose. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember because I was maybe living with my parents too long, you know, like they were taking care of me. And uh, and so you gave me this place where all I did all day long was walk Rose and then you would leave books before you went out. Like so you'd leave like Henry Green or John Updike. And I'd read them and when you came back, we'd talk about them. And that was like the span of my life for a while I was just walking rows and reading books and it was like the happiest I'd been. I also
3: really remember like one of one of the first times I ever met Leanne and you guys were going out on a date and I was racing around trying to get ready and you guys were sitting on the couch saying, Well, good night.
2: That's right. Oh my god. <laughs> I forgot. And it was about really, that. really
3: adorable.
2: Yeah. I yeah. think um I mean, for me in so many ways, when you reached out to me and we became friends, um, I was right at the beginning of whatever was gonna happen to me as a writer. And so there was just this kind of like, once I kind of became friends with you, I was like, oh, here's a roadmap like to navigate this without losing yourself, right? Like the decisions that you make as a writer and the things that you write about and the way that you conduct yourself it was just it was just like a road map and i knew i wasn't going to end up in maybe the same place but i knew that that was a good way to start right so it was always so helpful um i don't know what i would have done without that and i don't i mean i feel like so much of our relationship is you uh kind of telling me what i need to do <laughs> to to like not go crazy, so that's always been helpful.
3: But what's so strange to me is I feel like I've never helped you as a writer. (laughs) Like I have all of these writer friends and we read each other's work and we mark it up and we edit and we have all these conversations about the plot and what's going to happen. And we don't have that at all in our relationship. Like it's, we talk about writing but much more from the place of what are you reading or where do you have to go or what do you have to do but I feel like you just go off and write your books.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't show anyone my work ever. I shouldn't you know? take it personally. No, I, I don't ever. I just um, it just seems like an imposition, and I, I like keeping it to myself. You know, I like it being my secret until I'm done with it. Um, and so, what's always been great about when we meet is is that we really focus on the thing that we love, which I think is reading. You know, yeah. As maybe even more than writing, is just there aren't many people that read as many books as we do, I think. And yeah. so it's nice to have somebody when you've read a book that you, you you can believe that they'll have read it too.
3: Also that we both read a lot of galleys. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that's sort of taken over our lives. And there isn't anybody that you can sit down and say, I'm reading this book that's not going to come out for five months yeah. that I really love. Uh, and, yeah,
2: And I think f- for me, talking about reading... Is, is a way for us to talk about writing in that we start to figure out like the things that we love, like stylistically where we yeah. may be different. Uh, and so those moments when we both love a book equally, it's neat to think about why, you know? And so that helps me think about my own writing, but I just, I don't know. I, I always just want to talk about books.
3: So does Leanne not read your stuff while you're writing it?
2: No, uh, no. Um That's so interesting. Leanne will read that. it at the end when I'm done, but uh, you know, with the kids and everything, it just feels like work to give it to her at this point. Uh, she <laughs> listens to me talk about it, you know, but but again, like I just I just feel like if somebody reads the words before I'm done, it's gonna mess it up. You know, it won't it won't be it won't be right. Do you
3: tell your plots to people? Do we talk about a plot? No, I didn't.
2: Not
4: really. Well, kind yeah, of but
3: you know, I think about the bear book. Yeah, we did talk about that, yeah. but maybe. Maybe that's why it didn't come out. <laughs> no, I'll talk
2: about it with you because I do, I think both of us like thinking about structure, like how yes. we're starting. And yes. so with you, I will talk about the ideas I have for a book and Leanne, my wife, I will, but that's, that's it. You know, I, again, I just have a weird thing about like the, the privacy, the intimacy of writing for me is what I love is that it's in my head and I just like keeping it there as long as possible. Do you talk to Carl about your, does he read your work? Carl.
3: (laughs) Carl's my husband. Um, I always say, you know, I staple a $20 bill every five or 10 pages into the (laughs) manuscript just to give him the incentive to keep going. It's my relationship with Carl and all of that has been so hard, although I think he's right. His whole thing is everybody loves you because you're Ann Patchett and I love you because you're Ann. Mm -hmm. He's so supportive of my career and my decisions and all the weird things I do. We've had like five different people in our house in the last two weeks. And Carl is always saying, oh, this is so great. You bring so many wonderful people into our lives. Everything I do, he's supportive. Oh, you know, honey, I'm going away again and again and again. And he's great. I'm so proud of you. But he cannot stand to sit down and read my books. It's excruciating for him. But he's really helpful in talking through practical things, mostly medical, because he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm thinking about a book right now, and I'm trying to decide if the character's dying. And so then I'm trying to decide if they they do have a terminal disease, what is it? And then I'm always saying to him, okay, so I want something where the person's not in pain, but they have three (laughs) months to live, and... You know, he really will sit down and take that seriously. But he also finds that very creepy. I remember walking out of a hardware store with him one day a couple of years ago, and we'd bought a wrench. And I, I was holding the wrench, and we were getting in the car, and I said do you think I could kill somebody with this wrench? And he was like, what happened to you as a child? <laughs> like, you can't even just hold a wrench without thinking of the terrible things the wrench could do. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's weird that you mean like I do an exercise with my students where I just give them an object, and I'm like, now figure out how to utilize this in a narrative, just immediately. And it's always like a pineapple, a, a dog collar, or something. And, and what's interesting to me is like, whenever they falter, uh, violence is always the answer. <laughs> like any object you can basically utilize for violence. So it's always the easy way into a narrative. It's like you hit someone with a pineapple, you strangle someone with a dog collar. So maybe that's just the way my brain works with conflict. I'm like, oh, just run to violence.
3: That's, I, that's really interesting. I remember when I used to teach back in the old days, I had a no-death policy in my workshop. Uh-huh. I always said that if you're going to kill a character, you have to make an appointment and come and talk <laughs> with me first because it was so default. It was like, you know, I don't know how to end the story. I'll have the character be hit by a bus. Never a car, always a bus. And, and I would say, you know, that you just can't do it. You, you can't use death to solve your problems.
2: That's... I think we've talked about this before, maybe, but my one of my professors at Vanderbilt, when I was first learning how to write, was Walter Sullivan, who was in his probably late 70s at the time, but I'm sure he'd been reading student stories forever, and there was so much death, you know, and I remember yeah. one kid had written a story where someone dies, and and Walter just kind of looked tired, and he was like, you know, if you ever ask your, your characters what do they want almost always they'll say, I want to live. So Mm -hmm. can you find a way to let them live? And that really resonated with me for the rest of the time that I've ever written with my characters. It's not like I want to avoid danger or it's not that I can't put them in danger or hurt them, but I always ask myself, like, could I keep them alive? Can I I save them in some way? And if I can find that way, I'm going to try to work the narrative towards that. Now my
3: mind is running through all of your body of work, and people don't die.
2: I try not to kill people.
3: And, yeah. then, and then... And sometimes
2: I'll bring them back to life if they're Right, dead. Wildfire
3: yeah. Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> the guy who cuts his yeah, throat yeah. over and over and over and over again yeah. and just pops right back up.
2: Yeah, I'm, my stories sometimes are weird or my novels have strange conceits, but I always want... I don't want my characters to get hurt. Uh, I just... And maybe that's just a tenderness that means I can't write certain stories, but... For me, it's it is always I just always have that line in my head. I want to live, you know, and mm. so I just try to figure that out.
3: Yeah, it's like I'm so bad at villainy. <laughs> I can kill them. Um, I can I can have horrible things happen to them, but I I don't have any ability for villains.
2: Yeah, I I think about that with your work, and one of the things that really resonated with me when I was learning how to write and reading your work was the complexity that you give to complicated characters, right? And that if you stretch time long enough, those characters that that seemed evil or, like, the source of all the pain, when you stretch out that timeline, they get folded into the narrative and become part of a family or become understandable. And that was a real thing for me to figure out, too. Like, if I can just stretch time out a little bit, I can give them enough time to redeem themselves.
3: Right, right. I always thought I would be such a crummy lawyer because... I, would all, I can always see both sides of everything. And then I start to think, oh, this is my villain. No, really not so villainous, <laughs> not so bad. I mean, remember there, there was a character in Run who I uh, thought was really a, a pretty bad guy, yeah. the, the oldest son, Sullivan. And I went out on book tour, and every single person said to me, oh, my God, my favorite character, <laughs> Sullivan. Oh, I just loved him. And I thought, wow. You know, I just can't get close to it.
2: Is that a weird sensation for you when people tell you who your fa- their favorite character is? Or
3: it's a zero sensation. <laughs> it, it's just by the time I finish a book, it is gone forever from me. So by the time by the time it's out in galley, I no longer care. So the only people's opinions that really move me are the people who have read the book before it's in galley. Uh-huh. By the time it's published. People will say, "Oh, I love Sullivan," and I'm thinking, "Sullivan, Sullivan, did I go to high school with a Sullivan?" You know, I can't, I can't remember who they are. Do you stay attached?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I, those characters live in my head longer. They echo for mm-hmm. a while, um, and no, they do kind of. I still kind of hold them in my head. Um, it's not that I'm making new stories for them, but. But part of the way that my brain works is looping. It's just, it just can't quite, once I, I have to be very careful about what I put in my brain because it's there for good. And so with my characters, when I put them in my brain, even though I'm not writing new stories for them, I'm reliving, I'm remembering what has happened to them. So it just kind of loops.
3: That's really interesting because I know that when I'm writing something, if it's fiction or nonfiction, I will read it endlessly over and over and over again. I just wrote this super long essay for a lecture I have to give in the fall, and I feel like I've read it a hundred times, yeah. but it, it's about distancing myself from it, that I want to read it until I am so sick of it <laughs> that I'm actually, I break with it, I'm free of it, and I think that's it, I'm never gonna look at that thing again. And then I can go on.
2: Yeah. I would, for me, like probably 75% of writing for me is reading what I'm already written. It's just reading it over and over and over and over until that kind of going back eventually creates momentum enough for me to move forward. And then when I lose that, I just go back and again and again.
3: I always think of it as like folding in a batter. Where you you know, you've got the batter and then you're supposed to fold in egg whites and you put in a little <laughs> yeah. bit and you just turn it in. So so if I'm sitting down to a novel and I'm on page sixty, I sit down and look at page fifty and then work inside page fifty to oh, sixty, nice. and at the end of the day I'm on page sixty three. Yeah. But it's not like I started at page sixty and wrote three pages. You know, it just sort of bumps Out in a way all right which brings me to wanting to talk about how fast you read you wrote nothing to see here how fast you wrote it how fast I read it
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I wrote it really fast I had been in my head I'd been ever since I wrote uh, my novel The Family Fang and that came out in 2011 I knew I, I knew I was gonna write about kids that burst into flames and I just knew that was coming and so when I know that's happening, I just let it sit. And I just live with it and until, again, I'm, I'm re- going through it over and over again. And I try to get that, even the first page, like what it would look like on the page. I'm just mm. trying to hold it all in my head. And mm. so then when I sit down to write, if it goes well, it can be fast, right? And And that particular instance of writing in 10 days was just like I was on sabbatical. I was out of town. I was in a a little crummy cabin in Black Mountain, North Carolina. There was nothing else to do. And uh, there was just this moment where I was so deep into it. I, was, I just said, you should finish it. Just go. And so I just lived very strangely for 10 days and just woke up when the sun came up. And I wrote, and then the house would be dark because I'd never turned on a light, you know. And mm-hmm. so when the sun went down, that's when I knew the day was over and I'd put the computer down and eat something, and I'd read a little bit, and then I'd go to bed. And I did that for 10 days. And there was just that moment where I was like, do you want to finish this? And I was like, let's just do it. And and I finished it.
3: And and does that ever seem a little sad? Like, you had this great book and this great idea, and then you got it all done? Because I, I do, I mean, I'm a dog always on the wrong side of the door. If I'm writing, I want to be finished. And if I'm finished, I want to be writing. So I'm both really attracted to that story and also it makes me a little sad.
2: Mm-hmm. I had them in my head though for maybe 7 years, right? Oh, like okay. like Bessie and Roland, like I knew what they looked like and they were just with me all the time, not in some I'm not like a ghost like, I just in no, my head. I, get it. I was just sure. they were with me and so all that time there was a point where I was like you just you need to you need to start, right? And and the writing is Sometimes I just, I love being in my head with the story and that's, that's where the real fun is. And the writing is, is, is just muscle memory. It's just mechanics for me.
3: Yeah, I always think everything that rises much must, must converge. So, I think and think and think about a story and I don't write it until the point at which the idea of not writing it becomes more painful than the idea of writing That's it. That's nice. Yeah. And I'm always trying to lower that cross point <laughs> like you're going to do this why torture yourself? You know, why not just go ahead and write it?
2: Which book of yours took the shortest amount of time to write?
3: Well, that's interesting. Um, Probably Truth and Beauty, but that doesn't count because it was a memoir and it was also a really short book. I mean, I could say that the Dutch house took a really short amount of time because I wrote a whole draft that was completely wrong and (laughs) threw it out, (laughs) and then I couldn't figure out. But when I finally figured it out, I wrote it really fast. Um, Commonwealth was the easiest book to write. It was the most fun book to write, Belcanto Canto was the worst book to write. Really? I mean, and maybe in some ways The Dutch House was the worst book to write because I certainly have never finished a whole book and thought, nope, oh <laughs> that God, didn't yeah. work. I'm going to yeah. throw that out. Have you ever written a whole book and thrown it out? Or
2: No, I've written almost a whole book and thrown it out. Um, but no, I mean, by that point, um, I kind of I have a feeling I'm either going to... I'm going to get to the end, and if it's bad, it's bad. But yeah, I never... I kind of know before that and I stop. Um, but yeah, I think um for me too the the second my second novel was Perfect Little World which was like a 500 page book about babies and there were so many characters and it spanned a decade and just I think and I had lived with that book in my head for a while but like the actual writing of it was so difficult like keeping the timeline keeping the names all of this and I was like this is work like this is it's becoming less muscle memory and it's more like trying to like keep everything together. And so with this new, with nothing to see here, I knew before I even started, I was like, this is gonna be short. I'm gonna have a constrained space. I'm gonna have a very limited amount of time, like a timeline. And and just telling myself all that made it a lot easier to write too, because I just kept, um, every time I saw the story opening up, I, I narrowed it, you know, like uh, there was a point where there there were going to be these paranormal investigators who were going to come live. And in my head, I, I mean, and I was in that cabin in North Carolina, and I said, that's at least 60 pages. And I just thought, you can't have it. And it was just really lovely to be like, you can't have it. Like, even if it makes the book better, I can't have it. And I just kept moving. And it was nice to just constantly be telling myself, like, this is what you get you know, until I got there.
3: But I feel like then you're using your short story self to write a novel. <laughs> Maybe, is yeah. Is that what it is?
2: It might be. I mean, it might be, again, just trying to ride that momentum till... I talk about this a lot, but for me, novels are long trips. Like, I, yeah. rent, I, I, I buy a car at a very reasonable interest rate, and I get in it, and I have a sense that I'm going somewhere, but I don't know how or when I'll arrive, you know? But I can see a trajectory, um, I just don't know exactly how I'll get from point A to point B. And for me short stories and why I've always loved them is I'd steal a car
4: <laughs> and I'd
2: drive it right into a tree and uh, and I don't die. Do you know what I mean? And I yeah. get out of that car yeah. and it's on fire and I'm invincible and I walk away from it. And those are two very different sensations. And with this novel it was the first time where it felt like I was driving to into a tree. Yeah.
3: That's so interesting. I And I don't write short stories anymore, but that's certainly how I grew up and how I was trained. And, and I always thought of it as, uh, you know, writing a short story was like falling in love. It was like falling off a building. It was all booze and cigarettes, and yeah. you could stay up night after night and just go crazy. You yeah. know, absolutely lose your mind, and then you would be finished with a draft at least. But that a novel... I have to take such good care of myself. And you can't, I can't look forward. I can't look back. I have to just one stroke, one stroke, one stroke. How can I stay alive long enough to finish this whole thing? So a novel is like a marriage. And, And a short story is like, you know, falling in love, yeah, just meeting somebody like and chucking everything. But yeah. I like the fiery car hitting well, a tree. Metaphor. And, and
2: that's when I wrote my first novel. I mean, what was so hard was to keep telling myself not to crash into the tree yet. You know, what I mean, I, that impulse was still there, and, and I had to just keep saying, Kevin, like you got so many miles to go before you can do that. And it was just instinctually something I had to fight against. So, how do you feel when you're out when you're done? Um, I, I, it's. I don't know. I, I, I'm i trying to, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I don't know what that feeling is other than just, um, I think writing is the thing that makes me happy, you know, and even finishing it, there's this kind of echoing that I know I'm going to keep doing it, that this is not the last thing. And yeah. so it's just part of a larger... Life that I've made, and maybe early on it didn't feel like that, but it does now.
3: It's always so funny when when I'm giving a talk and somebody comes to the signing table and they say, "Oh, you know, I just love your work. Keep writing. I really hope you'll write another book." And I always say, "Well, what else am I going to do? Yeah. Wait, I don't have another job. I don't know how to do anything else." And I think Carl's patients don't come into the office and at the end of their exam say. I really hope you choose to see another patient. I hope you'll be a doctor again tomorrow. Because it's like people think that this is going to vanish or this is a hobby. Um, But it's such a job.
2: I think I tell my students sometimes, like, I do this partly... I mean, I write because I love writing. And if I didn't love writing, I would just read um, because that's the other thing I love. But... Um, I tell my students a lot, I'm like, writing is the one thing that I, that I really love. And then they're like, what about your kids? And I was like, those aren't things. Like they, oh, that's always the <laughs> well, first question. I was like, what about your wife? What about your kids? And I was like, no, those are people. But the thing, the only thing that I really love is writing. It's when I'm happiest, you know, is when I'm yeah. making something on the page. And so um, that's completely separate from whatever comes after the book is finished. Um,
3: I also feel like it's such a privilege Uh, You know, that I get to do, I know what I want to do with my life, that I get to do it, that I love to do it. And that if I couldn't do it anymore, I wouldn't die. You know, it would be a completely different life. It wouldn't have the depth and the meaning. I have, and I think actually you have this too, but I have such a huge domestic life. And I feel like there's writing and there's laundry and there's food shopping and housekeeping and taking care of the company, and taking care of my husband, and taking care of my family, and those are my those are the two things I've got. I'm either making art or I'm making dinner.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and that if I didn't have the art anymore, it would only be dinner. <laughs> and the dinner is important. Like I don't want to be one of those writers who hides in writing and never comes out. I want to have life experiences. I want to do things for people. I want to be a good citizen. Um, because I think that that then feeds back into the work. I have some experience to go off of.
2: Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with that. And I I mean, the d- domestic sphere for me is the world that I mostly exist in, right? Yeah. And so for me, sometimes what I'm trying to figure out is how to blend those two spaces together, the writing and the domestic life. God, um, let me so know. And so what I'm mostly doing is blending it in my head, right, in my imagination of how what I write about. and But... Um, but it's almost impossible. that <laughs> They're always so separate in, in the real world.
3: Well, and for you, it really is. I mean, you talk about the fact that since you've had kids, your time has shrunk. I mean, even if you just leave your students and your teaching out of it, your time has shrunk so much. Mm-hmm. So you do get an Airbnb and run off and madly, madly write. Like, it's almost impossible for you to go to an artist colony where you'd have to apply six months in advance and figure out your time and go away for a month.
2: Yeah, and most residencies are two weeks at the minimum. And so my wife and I, we, she writes too, and both of us are like, we can't do that to each other. Like, we let each other go away, but 14 is too long, right? 10 is about the max. right? Um, and and uh, so, yeah, so when I go away... Part of the rush is I wanna write as much as possible because that's fun, but part of it also is that I wanna earn the time away from the other thing that I love, which is being with my kids. And and by day ten I'm I kind of I'm like, if you haven't gotten it by now, Kevin, like there's better stuff you could be doing and I just leave, you know. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'll always have to figure out how to navigate it, but but it doesn't matter to me because it's what I love to do, you know. I'll figure it out.
3: So here's an absolutely unknowable question. Do you think that if you weren't married and didn't have kids you would have produced more work or less work?
2: Yeah, I think I, would, I think about this, um it's nothing bad about my kids or my wife or anything, but I I would I wouldn't have written I would have written more books without a doubt. Um but I also think those books wouldn't have been maybe as good. Do you know what I mean? Living with them forever is what Living with them for so long made the book better. And if I wrote more quickly, I don't. I think those books. My kids kind of help me figure out what's the thing I, I want to write about, and not oh my just God. always writing.
3: Yeah, and let's talk about that for a second before we wind up, because you, you know you're completely at this point in your career where you can see the thing that you keep coming back to, whether yeah. you mean to or not, which is the relationship of parents and children, and and how parents fail their children. Like, do you ever think? Damn it! I'm not going to write about this, this you know, the next time, and then you find yourself doing it?
2: I think what happens, and I learned this from you a lot, I mean, you were one of the first writers that opened this world up for me, is that what I write about is family, right, whatever that means, and when I read your work, I was like, oh, family means you can expand that definition of family, right, and, mm-hmm. and family is this thing that becomes amorphous. It takes in people and other people leave it and it's constantly shifting and growing. And when I saw that in your work that you could like pull people into that family and and other people would have to maybe leave, that opened me up to the idea of what I could write about. Right. And so with this book, you know, it's it's such a small shift, but it's this woman is not related to these kids. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to open up this idea of family is that that those those things you make to survive. And I saw that in your work was that that sometimes you hold on to other people in order to make it through the world. And when I figured that out, I was like, that's what I want to write about.
3: It's so interesting when I think about our families because you know you you still got the parents you came into this world <laughs> yeah. with, and you guys had a super close but closed off existence. Yeah. It was the four of you. And in my family, you know, it was just like, we just split and changed and grew and shrunk. And and I did have that sense of, like, go out and find your people. Yeah. Go out and have your family.
2: Yeah. I think sometimes people ask me, like, you know, you write about bad parents, like awful parents a lot. Like, what was your childhood like? And I was like, my parents loved me. They kept me from disappearing from the world. And, and maybe I write about this stuff because it's really the only conflict I can imagine is what would it be like to be a kid that wasn't protected, right? So that's just what I write about because I can't quite imagine it.
3: Right. Um, okay, I am going to ask you the question that I came <laughs> in here wanting to start off asking you because this is the thing that upsets me, uh, obsesses me, not upsets me. If you could go back in time to when we first met and you were a dog sitter for Rose and you didn't have this big career in front of you and make a choice about being... Elena Ferrante or not, which means, by which I mean, you could write brilliant books and nobody would know it was you and you would never go to a library association meeting and you would never go on book tour, give a reading, but nobody would ever ask you a question or say, good job. You would just make the art and get no affirmation personally. What would you pick?
2: I, yeah, I, this is interesting to me, but it's a, I think it, it it builds to a larger thing that I think about, which is that um, so much of my life, and for better or for worse, is just, it's so easy for me to, to disappear. Um, and what I mean mm-hmm. is I'm always worried about staying connected to the world, like dying, like just not being here. Um, that would be so easy for me. It's very seductive to just dig a hole and live in it and disappear from this world. And what I found out is that writing for me is this tether to the larger world. It's this thing that keeps me connected and keeps me from disappearing. And even if I could write those books, but nobody would know, I mean, part of what I feel like sometimes I need is that thread of another person, that that moment where we kind of see each other for a second and we understand there's a moment of clarity. I kind of need that. I'm, again, it's just a safety thing for me to, to not disappear. And I think if mm. nobody knew that I did it, then it would be a lot easier for me to to stop and and, and fall away from this place.
3: That's such a good answer. I think we should just end because that's perfect and beautiful. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thank you, Amy.
0: <laughs> so what I tell you? Wasn't that a really cool conversation? I loved it. Uh, just listening to it again makes me just, I'm right back in in Nashville in February, pre-everything. Oh, but that was wonderful. So hope you enjoyed that, and both books are available now. Just check the show notes for more information.
1: Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library LoveFest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.